from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. This Labor Day weekend, I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. As Hurricane Ida ravaged the Gulf Coast, shuttered exports crashed corn and soybean prices this week. And Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack answers if CFAP money is running out. How Gen Z views technology. Millennials, uh, those who are roughly 25 to 40 years old, they're, they're the fastest growing group of farm operators in the state right now. Technology is getting out of your comfort zone. A day America will never forget. The overall picture of the God Bless America is 3,500 feet tall, 2,800 feet wide. An agricultural salute to United We Stand, heading into the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And in John's world, the pipeline problem. Now for the news happening right now, the race to restore power in southern Louisiana. That's as the wrath of Hurricane Ida continues to unfold. Hurricane Ida slamming into the area as a Category 4 hurricane last Sunday. The scope of the damage is becoming more evident. The levees that underwent billions of dollars in improvements following Hurricane Katrina, those held. However, the power grid did not. In some areas, it could be weeks, if not longer, before power is restored. Our news gathering partners from this week in Louisiana agriculture trying to make their way out to see the damage to farmers and ranchers and what they're facing. Louisiana actually accounts for nearly half of the sugarcane crop produced in the U.S. But the longer the power's out, the bigger the problems could grow. We do have some overlap between power outages in southwestern Mississippi and some of the broiler production areas. So that'll be one thing to watch. Very tough to keep birds cool when the power is out. That usually leads to excess mortality in broiler houses. That would include any dairies. Milk cannot be stored, has to be dumped. And also from the standpoint of fuel, power outages make it difficult to obtain fuel. The market pulling back this week out of concerns exports from the Gulf are just not getting through with the sustained power outages worrying traders. Besides the damage to the Cargill facility in Reserve, Louisiana, Cargill confirmed another terminal was also damaged by the storm. Now, traffic on the lower Mississippi remains suspended, with authorities saying they hope to reopen things in seven days. The port of South Louisiana, that's a major shipping hub, it did reopen on Thursday. That is the largest grain port in the U.S. Grain elevators within the port handle more than 50 percent of all U.S. grain exports annually. From wildfires to the impacts from the hurricane. What is the future of disaster aid? Well, Farm Journal held a virtual town hall this week with Secretary Tom Vilsack. Vilsack says USDA is still assessing the damage from Hurricane Ida, but says the president's major disaster declaration in areas of the country this week, that does open the door for the potential assistance in terms of disaster loans. And as far as wildfires in the West, he told Clinton Griffiths that the wildfire issues are partially rooted in doing forest management, quote, on the cheap, end quote. But could more CFAP money be on the way as well? Well, there's debate on the aid for biofuels. I'm not sure that Congress necessarily approved it specifically for biofuels. That was the issue. That was part of the problem. Right. In the previous administration, there was no assistance and no help uh, for the biofuel industry. Uh, when this administration came into being, we made the decision at the USDA, uh, the resources that were made available to the USDA with enough discretion to be able to make decisions about how to allocate those resources, 
we made the decision to put resources into the biofuel industry. And I would expect and anticipate we're going to be seeing announcements on that uh, in the next couple of weeks. Also Thursday, USDA's updated net farm income forecast paints an optimistic picture for agriculture with projections that net farm income will be the highest since 2013 this year. At $134.7 billion, that's a 21.5% increase from 2020. While direct government payments are forecast to be 36% below last year, those payments are still expected to hit $28 billion this year. Well, a disaster of another kind may be brewing across the Corn Belt. Tar spot is showing up in fields across the region thanks to hot and wet conditions in July and August. The black speckled lesions, which were first discovered in 2015, can cost farmers anywhere from 20 to 60 bushels in yield. Some hybrids appear to be more susceptible than others. It's just been a year for a lot of disease because of our environment that we've had with the very high humidities, a lot of rainfall, in this tar spot, something more relatively newer type of a disease. Last few years, we just haven't had the conditions to make it flourish like it has this year. Right, you could see, you know, we've been tra tracking this every couple weeks and the progression from two weeks ago, it's just been amazing how fast this disease has taken the plants over and really concerned about the deterioration of the, the leaf tissue and then also the stalks for harvest timing. Meanwhile, it's also an army worm phenomenon taking over some fields. This is a field in Northwest Ohio that was a victim of the worst army infestation area farmers have ever seen. If you remember, we reported this summer that Arkansas was dealing with high populations of army worms, impacting pastures and grasses, but also rice, cotton, corn, and soybeans. And in Ohio, and an Ohio State Extension specialist telling us the moths blew up from the south there as army worms do not winter over in the Midwest. We weren't aware that we were supposed to be scouting for them this year. And what really set it off was suddenly the caterpillars got large enough that they were stripping the foliage off of all kinds of plants in 24 to 48 hours. And so it was a shock to the system when we finally realized that they were here in the numbers that they are. And he says the key is to scout often. The farmers of this field tell us on Friday they saw no feeding, but by Sunday of that weekend, half the field was wiped out. Well, the impacts of Hurricane Ida continue to play out this past week, but what's in store for weather this next week? We will check in with meteorologist Mike Hoffman next. Meteorologist Mike Kaufman joins us now with weather. Mike, unbelievable. Some of the images that are coming out of the damage from Hurricane Ida from the Gulf Coast all the way to the East Coast right now. Good morning to you, Tyne. It really is awful seeing some of those uh, videos. And, and what is also awful is more people died in the Northeast from the flooding than from the southern places, uh, Louisiana especially, where Ida actually hit, but I think that's because you're prepared for hurricane force winds down here. You're not always prepared for the flooding that comes several days later. Now, more than likely, the root zone is going to show a lot more blue through this area right here by the time we get to next week. This, you have to remember, is from earlier uh, this past week, and uh, that's why it doesn't show all of that uh, wet area. But we have wet areas across the northern plains, and we've had more. 
from the remnants of uh, Hurricane Nora, actually, that came out of the Pacific, but still very dry root zone and drought monitor for the western portions of the country. I think we'll see a slow improvement in the drought monitor as well in these areas. That's a, the drought monitor takes a while to change because it's a long-term dryness. And so uh, that's why uh, we'll probably see that only slowly change for a while there. But the root zone is going to continue to show the improving situations in the northern plains, but not in the west quite yet. Ridge starting off as we uh, see this week in the west. A trough digs into the Great Lakes. That's going to bring a shot of cooler air, even cooler than you've seen. Uh, for the Great Lakes in the Northeast, that's lingering into Friday, and it looks like it might be reinforcing itself as we head through next weekend. So the trough may be there for a while in the Northeast, and that means one off the West Coast as well. So let's check out Labor Day. Uh, looks like a cool front with scattered showers, and in the Southeast, some thunderstorms. None of these appear to be widespread heavy rain, but uh, there may be spots that get some uh, heavy stuff. Just uh, showers in that uh, northern system and hit and miss uh, afternoon thunderstorms typical in the southwest. Those will remain each afternoon as we head through the uh, week. On Wednesday, you can see another system moving northeast of the Great Lakes. Some scattered showers through that area on down into the central Appalachians. That's that shot of even cooler air. The first front kind of stalled out across the uh, Gulf Coast with some showers and thunderstorms. And by uh, Friday, we see a system uh, moving quickly through the northern tier of states with a few scattered showers. Most of the country is going to be dry, warm in the central portions of the country, cool in the northeast. System coming in out uh, west may actually give some showers to parts of uh, northern and central California into western Oregon. 30-day outlook for temperatures. I'm going above normal most of the central northern plains, much of the west. Below normal southern Mississippi Valley into the Tennessee Valley. Also above normal in the northeast and most, most of Florida. 30-day outlook for precipitation. Below normal the uh, northern Great Lakes, but above normal mid-Atlantic down to the Gulf Coast. Don't need that, obviously. Above normal in the southwest and then below normal uh, in the western portions of the country. Tyne. Well, Hurricane Ida did crash the markets this week, but was that the full reason markets tanked? We will talk to Sam Hudson as well as Chip Nellinger next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Chip Nellinger, Sam Hudson joining us. A lot to talk about with these markets. An ugly start to the week, Chip Nellinger. Prices, I mean, we quickly learned prices can go up quickly and they can sure retreat quickly. What was pressuring the core commodity prices this week, Chip? Yeah, it kind of had a little bit of a perfect storm, uh, quite honestly. So uh, obviously the hurricane, I'm going to put about uh, 85, 90% of the blame on the hurricane and the closure of uh, their export facilities uh, at the Gulf. But you combine that with the end of the month and some fun selling, you know, as those exporters, um, you know, had to take cover and evacuate um, the, the natural long hedger left the market. And, and so it's just kind of a confluence of uh, several different things. Also had some late rains around that I think the market believes will be a little bit beneficial and, and they could be to some very late beans, but this crop is speeding to maturity. And I'm not so sure that the, the late rains, uh, you know, did as much uh, benefit to the crops as what uh, maybe the market expects. I'm going to say uh, 85, 90% of that was the storm at the Gulf and the closure of those export facilities uh, there at the Gulf. 
Yeah, speaking about the closure of those export facilities, Sam, we got word on Thursday that the Port of New Orleans opened back up. Now, we still don't know about those key elevators that are down there. We know Cargill, two facilities there, had a direct hit. We're trying to figure out how long that will take. But the port being back open, do you think maybe that commodity markets, that type of pressure then is, is relieved a little bit? Well, it's definitely a good sign uh, to see that, and it, and it should at least put a little bit of confidence that uh, you know maybe we shouldn't underestimate uh, you know how quickly things could get going back at, around down there. But depending on how bad the infrastructure damage, that's that's what we're still trying to assess right now. Uh, yesterday, they were still busy trying to clear roads, get people in first. Um, you know, then you can get to you know getting onto these repairs. But I think one of the bigger issues is going to be the power supply. So I did hear a rumor there was. Uh, you know, maybe a plan to float uh, the idea of maybe some generators just to get uh, limping along until the power could be restored. But I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, once we see, you know, the indication on a timeline on that, I think the market will find a bit of confidence. And I agree with Chip. You know, we just didn't really have a, a big bid in the market anyways. Uh, crushers weren't crushing a bunch. They weren't trying to source a bunch of beans because there aren't a bunch out there. Same thing on the export side of things. So you, that organic buyer wasn't in the market kind of creates a vacuum. And I, and I think we should be cautious of the same thing potentially happening on the way up because we haven't lost that demand. It's just going to be rerouted uh, or delayed or both. Yeah, and you see those images coming out from Hurricane Ida. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Some good news that the levees held, but yet, you know, the power outages talk that it could be weeks, uh, possibly a month. So, Chip, how long can we afford, though, for exports and these key exports, since we are in September, really kicks off soybean export program here in the U.S. How long can we afford for exports to potentially be paused? Uh, to answer your question in a, in a short way, I think two, three weeks is expected. If it's going to be six, eight weeks or more, uh, that's going to be a problem. But, uh, you know, we've sent in a lot of help down there. Uh, you know, these linemen and, and people are, uh, this isn't their first rodeo. They're, uh, they know their job. They're good at it. And uh, hopefully they can get things uh, restored and somewhat back to normal within a couple, uh, two, three week period. And I think if that's the case, that's kind of built into the market right now, as far as that expectation goes. So, Sam, I mean, we fell so hard, so fast this week as a lot of pressures were put on this this market. Do you think it's possibly that we put in some harvest lows early? I think it's definitely possible with this being a catalyst to get that ball rolling anyways. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about spreads and basis and what happens here and, and how the dust settles. Uh, we did see those spreads widen out a little bit, and that may be an opportunity, uh, you know, to roll some hedges out to March, uh, you know, from December corn. Uh, for for folks that know they're going to take it after their you know first of the year, so uh, definitely a lot going on here. But as you mentioned, this, the occurrence of a hurricane doesn't mean our demand goes away. It's still there. The people that want it still need it. And you know the big question is, you know, in four weeks, are we going to be talking about shipping you know 15 to 20 million bushels of, of beans out of the country a week, or we're going to be looking at more like 45 to 60, very similar to what we saw last year. Yeah, well, next week we're looking at the next crop production and WASDE report out of USDA. Will we see USDA make adjustments to exports? What about acreage? NAS issued a notice this week. We'll talk about that with Chip Nellinger and Sam Hudson coming up. Well, we talked about port problems in news, but it's problems really all along the supply chain that are far reaching and having a big impact on agriculture right now. Here's John Phipps. One word in about every other sentence these days is pipeline. It's used to describe processes from petroleum refining to manufacturing Xboxes. Now, it seems intuitively clear. Stuff can only go in as fast as it comes out, and that's when everything's working. When one part of the pipeline has a problem, it gets complicated. 
By now, we all know about chips for refrigerators and pickup trucks. Why are pipeline problems so hard to iron out? Well, let's look at one raw material, hogs. When the pipeline is working, the price signals from the market are relayed to all the links in the chain sequentially. When the pipeline is clogged by a failure in any link, the same economic signals are sent along the chain to inform participants, but like all great comedy, these signals are about timing and some other factors like capacities, storability, and money. When the pandemic shut down meat processors, as workers got sick and consumer demand collapsed, hog prices plummeted. You can see what happened here clearly on this chart of hog prices. Okay, with a gestation period of 114 days, there's roughly a six-month delay from the time the market prices indicate a strong demand and the pigs are actually farrowed. Then, Add in the time to feed that hog to market weight, and the result is approximately a year from market signal to supply change. When the hog market tumbled as the first COVID wave hammered demand, producers wisely stopped breeding hogs that could not possibly make a profit. Roughly a year later, as demand has recovered somewhat, all those hogs that weren't born then helped create less supply and a price spike. Now we're at the trickiest part of all. Predicting demand for pork a year in advance is difficult under normal conditions, but the pandemic and economies have not performed anything like we'd hoped. Hence, this process could lather, rinse, and repeat. Products like pork are hamstrung, so to speak, by their relatively low storage capacity and long response time. Fresh produce has similar problems. Navigating all the possibilities is challenging. Even semi seemingly simple production chains have struggled with interruption. For almost all of them, future demand will depend on pandemic control and supply on how fast inputs can react. Some processes, like oil refining or chemical manufacturing, require extensive effort to restart from a shutdown. The winter freeze in Texas is impacting gas prices now due to that startup problem. Depending on the pipeline, getting back to pre-pandemic efficiency and output could take much longer than we expect for many products. Thanks, John. Yeah, I actually heard from a farmer this week that his equipment dealer told him that if even if he placed his tractor order today, he may be lucky to get that tractor by next fall. And we will continue to track the supply chain problems and how it's impacting agriculture. All right, we need to take a quick break. And then in two minutes, Machinery Pete has tractor tails. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to share with you a story of a family-owned Farmall 706 gas. Gassers were built back in, in the late 60s, early 70s with the options of two gas engines, and this has the larger gas engine in it of the two. And he predominantly planted with it in the spring, and I planted with it up till about 20 years ago, pulled an eight-row planter quite a bit. And then he also picked, picked his uh, ear corn with it pull a two-row new idea picker behind it as well. Being as things have gotten bigger now, we've retired it and fixed it up and we put it on display occasionally and, and uh, otherwise don't do much. I love the tractor, um, been with me up pretty much all my life and uh, I put new tires on it and stuff after we got it repainted and so it represents itself, so. How old were you when you first drove this tractor? Oh, I was probably 10 and we had two of them. At that time we had a wide front and, and we had a narrow front 706 and he later, he later traded the wide front off on a 966. You're up in the air like that, and boy, you thought you were a lot older than you were. 
we had a lot of fun and we, we had a interesting day one day the local state police officer was friends with my dad and I was going down the highway and he just pulled me over to tell me I was I was too young to be driving that tractor and I was never so scared in my life so but anyway there were good times remember there were good times we had occasionally we do we haven't done it this year because of the coronavirus issue last year there wasn't a lot of parades held wasn't a lot of shows held well next weekend marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11 an event that happened 20 years ago that united America and today, there's one farmer in Ohio that's doing his part to make sure all of us never forget. We'll share that story coming up on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. From harvesting data to calculating the ROI with some of those ag tech investments, today the biggest challenge in more farmers adopting the ag technology, well, it may be getting out of your comfort zone. Electric drives. For the Elsinger brothers, technology continues to take shape on their Ohio farm. Advancements in technology today. We've gone from having the normal traditional corn planter to having a fully automatic corn planter that will pretty much do everything on its own and tomorrow. It's mind-blowing. The Elsingers not only farm but also sell ag tech and even they say some technology takes time to adopt and then adapt. It was a learning curve but it is, we're very comfortable using technology today. Benefits from savings on seed costs to placing fertilizer exactly where it needs to be. Technology has absolutely helped us with our yield maps. We can create a better picture of what we need to, what fertilizers need to go where. We can use less fertilizer, less seed. These farmers are of the millennial generation and ones that see technology as a tool. As always, you're reluctant to try something new, but as you try it, you will learn more and more on how the benefits will be better in the end for everybody. The Elsingers say as they work with the older farmers in their area, comfort level is often the biggest barrier in trying something new. The older generation might be scared of the technology as the younger generation is more opt to take it and try to run with it. Exploring various generations comfort level with ag tech today is something Kansas State University's Terry Griffin has spent a lot of time doing. We've been evaluating how farmers, farm operators of different generations behave um, with respect to commodity combinations, uh, number of acres and use of technology. While it may seem obvious the younger generations are more willing to try ag tech, he says there are trends within the younger age groups he also tracks. One of the things that we have noticed between generations is that we have a few farm operators in Kansas who are of the Generation Z. He says Gen Z ranges in age from 6 to 24 years old today. And for those Gen Z farm operators, technology is often a one-take wonder. People in society of that generation have expectations that technology will work immediately. It's been said that for baby boomers and Gen X that technology has to be as simple as one, two, three. Well, those same sociologists would argue that for Gen Z, it has to be as easy as one. If it doesn't work the first time, you do not get a second or third chance to make it work. Griffin says as ag tech companies unveil new technologies, it's a trend they have to cater to. We can no longer push beta products out to the market. It must be fully functioning, plug and play, seamless, and to the most part, work behind the scenes such that there's no requirement for human interaction. And this is something that we do expect in the future as Gen Z becomes a larger 
proportion of farm operators. While Gen Z represents a small portion of farm operators today, 20% of farm operators within the state today are those that were born before World War II. Millennials, uh, those who are roughly 25 to 40 years old, they're, they're the fastest growing group of farm operators in the state right now. For the Elsingers, technology continues to race forward. Just how you can control, go across the field with auto steer and just watch the planter change the depth completely on its own. It can change its hydraulic downforce, the seating rate, all due to soil types and, and prescription you can pre-enter into the monitor as you're going across the field. Griffin says operations with multiple members involved also rely on technologies more than single operators. Part of our research, uh, multiple operator farms, two different generations, will have more technology than sole proprietorships. As these Ohio farmers think about today. It's amazing what technology has, how we've evolved and how it's going to keep evolving. They're also focused on tomorrow. I think the sky's the limit. I think as far as the imagination can dream is where we'll be at. Just give it time. Um, if you look at how far we've came in the past 20, 10, 20, 30 years. Getting out of your comfort zone to embrace change, to stay competitive for years to come. Well, a recent Farm Journal survey was conducted about ag technology. It found that 40% of farmers say none of their fleet is connected to stream data to a cloud-based management platform, and less than 10% have 75 to 100% of their fleet connected. Well, when we come back, has the crop production picture changed due to August weather? Chip Nellinger and Sam Hudson rejoin me next. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Heading into next week, we have a crop prog or crop production report as well as WASDE report from USDA. Uh, Chip Nellinger, you know, NAS did issue a notice this week that it's possible, based on new data that they received, that they could adjust acreage for corn and soybeans and some other crop that, that, that they typically don't do in the September report. Does that set the stage for some of those changes to definitely happen? Well, it, it certainly does. Uh, Tyne, I, I was hoping you'd go to Sam with this one. This is my absolute hot button. Um, th this acreage thing is just such a boondoggle uh, every year, uh, you know, going back a, a long, long time right now. So, you know, it's so confusing. Let's just change the rules of the game in midstream a week before the, uh, uh, the first major crop report out. So, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that if anyone can tell you how the USDA reconciles the NAS data and crop insurance data, uh, they're going to be lying to you. I don't think USDA can even uh, tell you that within uh, their uh, four walls of their office in Washington, D.C. Uh, it does open the door to uncertainty because it, it really hasn't happened this early. Usually they wait till October, uh, November, and then the final one on January to kind of reconcile uh, those acres. Uh, so we'll see what it means. I, I think the market uh, you know, with that uh, announcement, believes we're going to increase acres. Just because they're going to use the NAS numbers doesn't mean there's an automatic increase, but I think the market kind of assumes that, and it right. adds just one more wild card of uncertainty with the September crop report next week. Well, and that notice, I did reach out to NAS, and they said this is not something that's going to be permanent. I mean, they're just talking about it for this year, but it's possible adjustments in the September report to both planted and harvested acres, Sam. So is there some trade talk right now about what those adjustments may be? Well, I don't know if it's talk, but it's what Chip mentioned. It's fear, it's uncertainty. Uh, you know, them telegraphing this, uh, you know, more or less, a, you know, a few days or a week before a report is, is something interesting to me. But, you know, when I initially thought, 
saw that, I thought, well, you know, logically I'm thinking, well, maybe they make an adjustment on the harvested side here because of how bad the drought was in the Northwest Corn Belt. They may be able to, you know, decipher, you know, what those numbers may look like. But I'm scratching my head at thinking, what does a satellite photo tell you in August, September that it didn't tell you in June this year? I think in a year like 2019, that was arguable. But why are we going to go back and try to change planted acreage this time, uh, you know, in a September report where essentially we're trying to figure out yield. Now you've got this other stuff going on. Uh, to me, it's something, you know, wait longer term and get the number right, as opposed to, you know, sending the trade into a bit of a frenzy and trying to figure out what it all means. Chip, has your crop production and yield outlook changed? I mean, this crop has been thrown a lot lately since we were on Pro Farmer Crop Tour. We had some windstorms that came through. We had some areas that had a lot of rain, some areas now that missed rain. We're hearing about armyworms in some areas of the Corn Belt and impacting possibly some soybeans. I mean, has your crop production outlook changed in just the last two weeks? Well, probably not for the better, uh, you know, uh, hot weather, brutally hot August uh, for a lot of areas without much rain. And so we're speeding this crop to maturity in a lot of areas. And that usually is at the uh, sake or, or at the expense of yield. So, you know, I, I think that uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of still in the camp of where the USDA was in August. But this will be a, a good test because the September crop report is the first time uh, that they're going to you know, go out and actually do field surveys, weigh ears, uh, count populations, weigh pods, take harvested data if, if the field has been harvested. So they're going to be able to zero this in, not 100%, but if some of these uh, late season weather issues, the hot weather, the wind, uh, the, the USDA should be able to start picking that up on this September crop report because of the way they survey this thing. Yeah, so Sam, heading into this report next week, I mean, really, what are you watching? Me, it's going to see, you know, now that we've got this wrinkle with acreage, and what do they, you know, what do they adjust there? I, I would expect some sort of a yield adjustment there uh, on the, on corn, especially, but I don't know that the number can change so much in this report that it's going to have, you know, this overwhelming effect, especially after what's happened here on the export side of things at the Gulf. Uh, bigger point of focus for me is going to be on beans. It is so stinking tight there. Three, three and a half percent stocks to usage ratio. If we don't find some acres there and we don't see them go up with yield here in September, keeps things very tight, especially when you just broke the market a buck and, and you've got you know your OCK through February 1 demand coming that should be pretty heavy. Yeah, Chip, real quick. I mean, livestock prices also, you know, when you look at cattle prices, those took a hit this week at a time when grains also took a hit. Uh, you know, what is really pressuring cattle prices? Yeah, you know, I, I think the cattle market maybe got a little too far ahead of itself and the deferreds, right? And you would expect with lower corn prices that that would have supported the feeders. But I, I think you just kind of got the spreads a little bit out of whack. The feeders got too high price. The deferred live cattle uh, just kind of factored in a little bit too much bullishness out there. And box beef turned for lower. And with that, the October live cattle futures sitting here just north of 127 is still a premium to the cash market, and that's really the biggest issue right now. So I think the cattle market just got a little too far ahead of itself in the short run here. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us this Labor Day weekend. Sam Hudson, Ship Nellinger, we appreciate it. Stay with us. We'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Well, one fact about Andrew McRae that you may not know, he served as a national FFA officer. And FFA continues to be a big part of Andrew's life. And this weekend, we pay tribute to one FFA chapter that lived up to its challenge to help its community despite COVID-19. He shares that story as he travels the countryside. 
The Paris FFA chapter has long valued the importance of helping all ages and backgrounds in their area. But when the COVID pandemic shut down schools in March of 2020, Paris FFA members suddenly lacked the regular day-to-day -day interaction they had at school. Members wanted a fun way to stay in touch, keep spirits up, and check on the mental health of their families. To do this, they turned to an unlikely group of animals, pink flamingos. And then they just got passed around town. And if one ended up in your yard, you had 36 hours to post on social media about what your family's doing during quarantine. And then if you didn't, one of the advisors would contact you to make sure that you're doing okay. Soon the flamingos were showing up online, helping members stay connected during their time away from one another. The local chapter also saw a need to assist with food security. That goal led them to two projects that raised food for their community. We raised 274 chickens, which equaled out to be 750 pounds of meat, and all that was donated to the senior center. The project became known as Fried Chicken Fridays. The FFA chapter got a grant to help with the purchase of the chickens, which local members then raised at home before bringing them back to school when they were grown. The program was a great success, helping members learn to raise animals at home while helping the senior center in the process. And while the chapter plans to continue raising chickens, this year they are adding beef to the menu. Paris FFA is partnering with local farms and businesses who donate a beef to be processed and the meat given to the local school lunch program. One thing that I've really enjoyed is our food donations because those people, sometimes they don't want to be recognized because they don't want people to know that they're in need of food, but they sometimes personally come up to you and thank you for what you've done and that really makes it worth it in the end. Paris members saw another local need when two school students were impacted by home fires. The FFA chapter decided to be proactive and help prevent a future tragedy. We had over 350 smoke detectors and over 1,500 batteries available for our community. Being active in the community has not only helped local citizens, but it's given members here a perspective on service that is important now and in the future. Not only having the fun activities in FFA, but also giving back to a community. And they see the importance and the fulfillment that you get from being an active in your community and giving back to people who might not necessarily have as much as you. Together, these members are putting into practice the last line of the FFA motto. They are living to serve. In Paris, Missouri, I'm Andrew McCray. Well, it's those inspiring stories, inspiring Farm Journal to help give back to the National FFA Foundation. Join Clinton Griffiths and I at 7 p.m. Central on September 20th for the Farm on Benefit concert. We're raising money to give back to an organization that means so much to many of us. Easton Corbin and many more will headline this concert. So mark your calendar September 20th. Join us at agweb.com or catch it on RFD TV. All right, when we come back, customer support. Technology is a U.S. Farm Report special report is brought to you by John Deere. Well, what does the future of farming really look like? Here's John Phipps. I received this thoughtful message from Stephen Brokaw in Biggsville, Illinois. I have recently streamed a couple of very interesting movies, Biggest Little Farm and Kiss the Ground. Both are on the topic of soil regeneration. I discussed these movies with a young neighbor of ours who farms some of our ground. After watching them himself, he was reminded of a book he had read some time back, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. 
It sure seems like there are some real possibilities here to improve rather than degrade our soils, increase the profitability of our operations, help heal our planet, and support our image as good stewards rather than practitioners of what many have come to see as industrial agriculture. Steve, your recommendations are appreciated. I did watch Kiss the Ground since I have Netflix, but I didn't watch the second one because I don't have Hulu. The movie was beautifully shot, and it shed some helpful light on the term regenerative. My initial reaction, however, was defensive, and I could nitpick some of the opinions and projections presented as facts. After some reflection, I think that would miss the most important points. One is that while I have long agreed with their idea of eliminating subsidies for agriculture, ending them would do little to change the nature of farming for most of us. It's like raising the basket in basketball. The same players would still be the stars. Ending the subsidies would not open the door to small diversified farms. Eliminating subsidies is simply a good idea on its own. My second observation is the farming practices suggested here are not universally possible across our gigantic farm area. The ideal presented is what I refer to as agrarian agriculture, which is not scalable. We lack the people, machinery, even the seeds. We simply don't have and can't afford to rebuild infrastructure like small slaughterhouses, which would be needed for the deconcentrated cattle population they advocate. The other unavoidable hurdle in farming practices are largely decided by landowners who may or may not be farmers. Widespread adoption of new methods will run into the brick wall of individual property rights, which are sacrosanct in rural America. A systemic change in agriculture cannot be imposed top-down. Instead, will require large profit gains to entice individuals. Finally, I don't find the term industrial to be as negative as the filmmakers. After all, good industrial jobs are a perennial economic goal. Even if regenerative farming is a viable answer to climate change and soil health, I just don't see any rapid path to that future. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, one Ohio farmer doing his part to make sure that we never forget 9-11. It's a touching tribute we'll show you next. Well, where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? It's lyrics from an Alan Jackson song, but lyrics and words that many of us will be asking each other over the next week. And as we enter the 20th anniversary of 9-11, one farmer is doing his part to make sure we never forget. Flying over Ohio this time of year, green fields paint a lush picture. But for one farmer, those fields were a blank canvas for something he was ready to create. I said, we've been doing the, the multi-hybrid variable rate for several years now, and we see different colors in the field. I'd like, you know, can we do something fun, something cool, and something patriotic? And in 2017, that's exactly what he did. Our first picture in the field, we did an American flag. From an American flag one year to a POW tribute the next, this year's tribute is by far the biggest. It's going to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You know, what do you think? I said, definitely, this is something we need, we need to do. Not just any tribute, a one-to-one -one scale of the Twin Towers. The overall picture of the God Bless America is 3,500 feet tall, 2,800 feet wide. 
From a JPEG image to then writing the script through Ag Leader, every hybrid is selected for its unique characteristics. You get with the, you know, the script writers and say, okay, and they, they basically take the JPEG image and put it into Ag Leader and they can assign uh, reference points to the picture, which allows them to then break it into the multi-hybrid. And the result is a salute that's now extending beyond this Ohio farm field. I've gotten uh, messages from LA to New York. We've seen people from other countries respond. I never dreamt that uh, we would touch so many people. I mean, it's it's been uh, been very humbling to say the least. A humbling response for a man who's planting seeds of unity. We're all patriotic. We all do you know things in our own way, and I'm lucky enough to have the technology and the friends to to do this. An American farmer who's also a volunteer firefighter, honoring those fallen on that September day. Bring light to a lot of people's uh, day. Especially, I mean, right now, the current climate in the United States, it's, it's like I said, it's nice to uh, bring some positive things. What a tribute. Thanks, Wilbur. That's all the time we have for this weekend and this Labor Day weekend. Join us next week as we kick off our 2021 College Road Show with Golden Harvest and Syngenta from Iowa State University. That'll be next weekend on U.S. Farm Report as we continue to work on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.